if you were to ask me, Rich, what is, what is your favorite thing about Jesus? The topic of this morning's sermon is the answer that, that I would give you. And uh, we're, we're in this sermon series right now called Jesus, um, seeing him again for the first time. And we've looked at a lot of different things over the last, uh, I guess it's been about three months. We've looked at his humility. We've looked at how he is the greatest champion of women that this world has ever seen. And on the other hand, he's this man's man who's not afraid to pick a fight with evil. Uh, we've looked at how he is fierce and he's strong, and yet he's gentle, he's good, he's truth, he's all those things, he's full of love. Um, but today is the topic that, that the part of Jesus that, that I absolutely love the most. And if you want to follow along today in your Bible or your Bible app, uh, we're going to be in the book of John chapter 21. And we'll be reading a portion of scripture that takes place kind of near the end of Jesus' time on earth. Jesus was on earth for 33 years. At, at about age 30 is when uh, he went public with his ministry. And the Bible, the, the four books in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they cover Jesus' uh, ministry. Most of those, the, the content of those books happens between uh, the age of 30 and, and 33, somewhere around there. And so, but, but near the end of his time on earth, this story that we're going to read takes place. It's a story that happens not long after Jesus rose from the dead. It's a story that in light of the cross and in light of the, the empty tomb, it's a story that, that almost seems a little bit anticlimactic in the, the biblical narrative. In fact, it's so anticlimactic that biblical scholars have actually um, debated if it even should be included in the canon of Scripture to begin with. Shouldn't the story of Jesus kind of end with like him coming out, bursting out of that tomb, then he gathers his disciples around, then off to heaven he goes um, to sit at the right hand of God. But I am so glad that this story we're going to read is in Scripture, and it's become one of my favorites because of how it shines the spotlight on what I love the most about Jesus. So we're going to be in John 21, starting in verse 1. If you've got a, like I said, a Bible or Bible app, Feel free to, to, to follow along. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee, and this is how it happened. So after Jesus' resurrection, he doesn't just take off. He actually lingers for, for several weeks, um, for about 40 days. And there's not a whole lot of, of record in the Bible of what happens during that time that he's, he's still on earth. But things are different because— before Jesus' resurrection, when he was with the disciples, he was with them. Like, he just was—he stayed with them. Uh, they, they walked together. They ate together. They were always together. But after the resurrection, things are a little bit different in that Jesus just kind of like—he'll pop in, and then he'll, he'll pop out. He doesn't stay with them very, very long. And the first time that he visited his disciples was in Jerusalem. And at that time, they were hiding out. They were locked in this room, and they were all just— freaked out that the Romans were going to find them and that they would be maybe uh, crucified like Jesus as well for being his followers. And so they were hiding out. And then all of a sudden, Jesus just kind of appears in the room. And they are both terrified because they think that he's a ghost. But then that quickly turns to joy as they realize that it is Jesus. He's alive. And, and, this, and then uh, the second time that he, he appears is very similar to that. But here we are. It's, it's about two or three weeks later after his second appearance, and he's about to appear for them for the third time. The disciples have all been in Jerusalem for the Passover, 
and, uh, and, and everything that happened there with the cross and the resurrection. And they have all kind of moved back to their home area of Galilee, at least those that were from Galilee. And they're not exactly motivated. They're not exactly fired up. They're not just like, Jesus is alive. Let's get out there and, and tell the world about Jesus and who he is. And in fact, they actually seem kind of lost. They seem a little bit dazed. They're unsure of what's next. Jesus really hasn't given them a whole lot of, of marching orders at this point. And so the Bible goes on to say that several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, um, we know are James and John, as well as two other disciples. And it's almost as if they're just kind of sitting around wondering, okay, what, what's, what's next? So much has happened. They've watched as their leader, their friend has been brutally murdered. They've, they've, they've seen Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. They know that he's alive. They've actually have touched his nail-scarred hands and feet. And I'm, I imagine that their minds are probably just like racing a thousand miles an hour, thinking through everything that has not only gone in, on in the last three years, but especially everything that's happened in the last four weeks. And then on top of all that, they're no doubt feeling the, the weight, the heavy weight of having abandoned Jesus and having betrayed Jesus in his hour of greatest need. Jesus had, had watched as they all had scattered at the sight of the soldiers. And of all of them, Peter has to be feeling the crushing weight of failure and grief the most. He was Jesus' right-hand guy. He was the guy that Jesus said, hey, your name's no longer going to be called Simon, but you're going to be Peter. Your name's going to be The Rock. That, that's that's going to be your new name. Peter was part of Jesus' inner circle, and he was the one that denied, denied Jesus three times. Yeah, Jesus is alive, but I imagine he still feels the weight of guilt and shame in the sense of failure. Finally, though, Peter can't take it anymore. He has to do something. And so he does what a lot of men would do in a situation where their just mind is racing a thousand miles an hour. They're probably a little bit stressed. They, don't, they just need a break. They need to clear their mind. The Bible says, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And the rest of them are like, hey, we'll, we'll come too, they all said. Now, I'm personally looking forward to the day where I can sit down with these guys and talk about this moment. Because this moment is very significant. And uh, so when Jesus first called us, the, the, the three guys, or most of the disciples, at least the three that, that are in this story here, um, Peter, James, and John, when he first called these guys, they were fishing. They were fishermen by trade. And Jesus, you know the story from, from Matthew chapter 4, Jesus invites them all to follow him, and the Bible has this picture of how they left everything. They left their boats, they left their nets, they left all their fishing tackle, they left paddles, everything. They left it all to follow Jesus. Not just the physical tools of the family business, but they had left the comfort, they left the security, they left the predictability that came with the, the fishing business. They left all of that to embark on this crazy, exciting adventure of following Jesus. But had it been worth it, they, they had, had experienced what it was like to have the one who is life walking with them, teaching them. They're, they're watching Jesus do all these crazy, crazy miracles, bringing freedom. They probably felt purpose in those three years more than they'd ever known in their whole entire lives. 
But now Peter and the disciples, get this, they are going back. They left everything, and now they are going back to their old way of living. And I wonder today if anyone has ever been in that place before. You know, you make a commitment that you're going to follow Jesus and, and you're going to give your life to him. You're going to surrender. You're going to turn from your old way of living and you're going to just go full on with, with Jesus. And, but it didn't turn out like you expected, so now you're back living how you used to live. Maybe you started out red hot for Jesus, but now you're back drinking from that old addiction when nobody else is looking. You're back clicking on websites late at night. You're back striving to win God's approval through religious activity. You're, you're back being ashamed of Him in front of the other students at your school. And there's so many reasons that we go back, aren't there? So many reasons. We go back because following Jesus is just too hard, we reason. Or following Jesus, it just, it costs too much. Maybe you just got disappointed. It didn't turn out like you expected that it would. Maybe you failed along the way, and, and rather than face that, it just seems easier to go back to where you were. And here's Peter and the, the disciples, and they've gone back. And the Bible says next that, it says, So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Peter, this scene might sound just a little bit Familiar, You might be going, I think, is that in another part of the Bible as well? Well, when, when Jesus had actually first called Peter to follow him, Peter had been up all night fishing and caught nothing. And in that moment, Jesus shows up. Um, he, he helps them catch the, the mother load of all catches. And then he asks them to leave it all to follow him. And you got to know that, that as, as Peter is out fishing— at first, he's probably feeling pretty awesome. You know, he's doing what he loved doing. This is what he likely had done since he was a boy. You can almost just picture him. He's out there on the, on the boat, the Sea of Galilee. The boat's just like drifting over the waves. He's got the wind blowing in his face. He's got seagulls just squawking in the sky. He's probably just going, ah, it feels so good to be back. But all that starts to go sideways as he casts out the net and he pulls it up empty. And so he does what any fisherman would do in that moment. He casts it out again, and it pulls up empty. Over and over and over and over and over again, he casts out the net, and he pulls it up empty. And his back begins to ache. I mean, he hasn't done this in a long time. His muscles start getting crampy. His body is tired and weary, but he keeps casting it out, pulling it up empty. The life that he went back to, hoping that it would make things better, is actually doing the opposite. It's making life worse. And you know what it's like. You, you go back to your old way of living, and maybe at first things are, are better, but eventually it gets heavier. You're, you're back to a life of isolation, but the loneliness gets heavier. You go back to the, the same old sin that you gave up. At, and at first, maybe it feels good. It feels kind of intoxicating. But now it's bringing you nothing but that heavy burden of guilt and shame. Peter's gone back to his old way of living, thinking it's going to make his life easier, but it ends up doing the exact opposite. And I, I wonder if at some point during the night, I wonder if the thought crossed Peter's mind, I'm a, I'm a failure, and this is God 
paying me back. He's just giving me what I deserve. Just giving me what I deserve. You know, I've shared uh, here probably several times now because it's just a, a big part of my personal story, but my whole sawmill experience. Um, and to say that I was in a wilderness during that period of my life would be a total understatement. It was hell for me. And it came on the back end of me making some pretty big mistakes in life. I had, um, I'd secretly gambled away thousands of dollars um, while I was a, an associate pastor on staff in a church. Um, long story short, I resigned for other reasons, but ended up taking a, uh, uh, a job that just was not me, a good paying job in a sawmill. And, uh, but I was so, so, so miserable. And uh, those first few months, um, as I'd walk back and forth, so I, my, my first job was like, you start off at the bottom, right? So you get, the, you get the worst job in the whole entire sawmill. And my first job was walking back and forth on this really long platform. And there was, there was these like massive bins all along that platform. And lumber would come along on this machine and drop lumber into these bins, all different sizes. And my job was to like, I had this like long pokey stick and I have to like yank on the lumber so that it fell straight. Because if lumber gets all mixed up in there, it just turns disastrous. But that was my job. I do that for about 10 hours a day. And uh, the first few months though, as I'm doing that, you know, I've got my, just picture me, I've got my hard hat on, and I've got my muffs on, and I've got my, my busy vest, and I've got my, my steel-toed boots, and my, my, my work gloves. And I remember so many times walking back and forth on this thing, and, and it's loud. If you've ever been a sawmill, you know it is loud. There's a reason why you're, you're wearing earmuffs. It is so loud. But even the noise, noisy machines could not drown out the voice in my head that was just on repeat. God's paying you back. You're getting what you deserve. You're getting what you deserve. And I didn't know it at the time, but I've since learned that that voice has a couple different names. One of the names is shame, and the other one is condemnation. Shame comes along, and rather than say you messed up, shame says you are a mess up. You are a failure. Condemnation comes along and says, because of what you've done, you're going to be punished. It's what you deserve. And shame and condemnation are devastating. They are absolutely devastating. They, they, they can wreak such havoc on, on a soul, leaving you in a place where you just want to give up. And whenever you hear either of those voices, you need to know something. They never come from Jesus. Never. It's never from Jesus. In fact, Jesus, Jesus, just in case you, you're wondering if maybe it does come from him, Jesus made it crystal clear in, in the verse right after John 3, 16. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Shame and condemnation are from the enemy, never from Jesus. He's not about that stuff. So here's Peter and the disciples. They're... they're they continue just fishing through the night. They're casting their net, nothing, casting it again, nothing, casting it again, nothing. Eventually, the dark of night begins to fade and give way to the light of dawn. You know it's been a long night when the light of dawn is starting to slowly rise on the horizon. And right on cue, somebody shows up on the beach. The Bible says, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. 
I just love that picture. It's, it's been dark. It's been an awful night. It's been fishing and nothing, failure, guilt, shame, all that stuff. And then at dawn, Jesus shows up on the scene. The Bible says he called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? And they probably didn't think anything of the question because every time you're fishing, someone's going to ask you if you've caught any fish. It's the question to ask, right? You're walking around Lake Pad and you see some people fishing. You're like, hey, how's the fishing going? You caught any fish? And if you've been that person fishing who hasn't caught any fish, it's the worst question to be asked, right? You're like, oh, yeah, thanks for adding to like the awfulness of the day. The disciples respond with a simple no. And then the stranger on the beach does say something that's rather unusual. He says, and he's hollering this out because he's on the beach. Throw out your net on the other side, on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. Now imagine, you just try to picture the scene for a second. Disciples are in the boat. They've been doing this all night long. Nothing. And, and here this guy gives this crazy suggestion, command, whatever. He, he says, cast your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. Now just imagine them sitting there, Quizzical looks on their face, wondering, is this guy for real? Doesn't he know that fish can just swim from the left-hand side of the boat under to the right-hand side of the boat? It's not going to make any difference if the net's on the right hand or the left-hand side of the boat. Doesn't he get that? And then what happened next has remained a, a complete mystery, and its answer, again, we'll have to wait until heaven. But for some reason, the disciples listened to the stranger on the beach. And maybe they just thought, hey, what do we have to lose? It's been all night. This guy on the beach is crazy. What do we have to lose? Or, or maybe they remembered back to that first mirac miraculous catch of fish, and they just maybe thought in the moment, hey, for old time's sake, let's do, something, let's do something crazy. Let's cast the net one more time. But when you're at the end of your rope, and desperate enough, you, you'll reach out for any life preserver someone tosses you, won't you? When you're at the end, and somebody toss, tosses you a life preserver, you will reach out for it. A grandparent says, hey, you should go to church. And you're like, why not? I've got nothing else. Some of you listening today, you, you might just be in that boat. You have nowhere else to turn. And so you're here or you're watching online because you just got nowhere else to turn. You're looking for some kind of life preserver. And, and, and maybe you tuning in or being here, it's crazy that you're here, but you're just going, why not? The disciples take up the stranger on the beach's offer, and the Bible says that when they did, they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. It's a, it's, it's a total miracle. No fish all night, then on a strange piece of advice from this random dude on the shore, they, they give it one more try, bam, it's filled with fish. That's a total miracle. And you know how I know that that's, that's a total miracle? Because I've done a lot of fishing in my lifetime. And if you ever have done fishing you, and you haven't caught anything all day, all night, whatever, you're always thinking, okay, one more cast. And this will surely be the one where I catch a fish. And you don't. And so you put it out there one more time because this is going to be the one. And here's the thing about fishing, at least for me, it never happens where you catch that fish on the last try. And, and, and here we have, they, they do it, and bam, miraculous catch of fish. And as awesome as this miracle was, it's nothing compared to what is about to happen. Jesus is actually just getting started. 
Next, the Bible says, then the disciples, or sorry, then the, then the disciple Jesus loved, this is the, 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 the writer of the book of John is referring to himself. It's very curious how the writer of this book, John, he always refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. I just love that. It's like he just wants to put it in there for all of eternity that he thinks Jesus loves him the most. But he's like, the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he had stripped for work. He jumped into the water and he headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and they pulled the loaded net to the shore for they were only about 100 yards, or they were only about 100 yards from shore. And when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. I just love this about Jesus. You know, when you really press into the, the, the Gospels and just who Jesus is, and there's just so much that, to love about him. But I, I, I love this, this scene here. You know, he tells them to cast their nets on the right side, and from a distance, he sees them. He, he, he's watching it from the shore, 100 yards, the Bible says, and about the length of a football field. And he's watching them. He's watching as they, they get all these fish, and I imagine he probably sees the, the flapping of the fins and all that from the shore, and all these little splashes happening. And, and I imagine they're probably just hooping and hollering as they got all these fish. He, Jesus watches as Peter dives over the side of the boat and starts swimming to shore. And I just imagine Jesus laughing out loud, and then with a big smile on his face, he lights a fire and starts making breakfast. But he doesn't just light any fire. He lights a charcoal fire. Now, why would the Bible feel like it needs, like, why would God, in the grand scheme of things, why would he feel like, okay, I need to put this detail in here. I need to put in here that it was a charcoal fire. And I don't know if you've done a lot of fires and stuff, but it's pretty rare, at least for me, maybe for you it's different, but I've done a lot of beach fires, and whenever I do a beach fire, it's not charcoal, it's, it's wood. You, you bring wood from your house and, you know, you go to Cherry Point, you don't bring a bag of charcoal and dump it in the fire. Maybe some of you too. Maybe, I, I don't know. But it's usually a wood fire. But here, here we have Jesus on the beach and it's not a wood fire. It's, it's a charcoal fire. And, and the reason is, is because he's setting the scene. And just three weeks earlier, as you know, at Peter's moment of greatest failure, his moment of greatest failure in his life, when he denies Jesus three times, there was also fire in that moment. And Scripture says it, says it like this. It's not going to be on the screen, so just listen. In. But the, the, the Bible says the servant girl at the front, or the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of, the, of this man's disciples, are you? This is just before the cross. And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. And Jesus, he makes a charcoal fire as he sees Peter heading in from the shore. He makes this fire. He throws some fish on it. He brings out a little, little bread and he gets ready for another miracle. He's setting the scene here, bringing Peter back to that moment. And, and as the disciples pull up on shore, Jesus says to them, he says, hey, bring some of the fish you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. 
None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. And the Bible doesn't mention what the conversation, if any, was about over breakfast. Wouldn't you like to know what they talked about? We don't know. But, but I wonder if Peter's mind is going back to just two to three weeks prior. Maybe he's looking at the charcoal fire, and, and you know how our memory is so tied to, to, to smell, right? You smell something, and just it takes you back. And, and maybe he's rem remembering in that moment how he denied Jesus three times, and he's recalling the bitter agony he felt when Jesus actually looked at him that third time. And, and the Bible says they, they, they made eye contact just before Peter goes off and weeps bitterly, the Bible says. And so here they are, they're gathered around this charcoal fire, fish still flapping on the beach there, just haven't been caught. And as Jesus sits across the fire from Peter, eating his fish and bread, this is all Peter can probably think about as he gradually loses his appetite. Who knows? He had failed his friend, his Lord, his Savior, in the worst possible way at the worst possible time. He did not deserve that catch of fish. He did not deserve to have Jesus cook him this meal. He didn't deserve this kindness that Jesus was showing him. And there's a word that describes what Jesus is showing Peter. That word is grace. It's grace. Grace is cussing out God because of how your life has gone. And then you walk outside and breathe in the fresh air of the Pacific Northwest and all the goodness that goes with that. Grace is saying something hurtful to your spouse on the way out the door, and then you arrive home at the end of the day to a beautiful home-cooked meal. Grace is getting pulled over for breaking the speed limit, and rather than be fined, you're given a warning. Grace is you rebelling against the glory and the goodness of God, turning your back on Him, and then having Him make, or, or then having Him make a way for you to be saved, make a way for you to know life, even at great great cost to himself. Grace is you deserving to be condemned, deserving to be punished, but instead you're given what you don't deserve. You're given the kindness, the mercy, the love, the goodness, the forgiveness of God. The story goes like this after they're sitting around breakfast and we don't know what they're talking about, but we can, we can kind of imagine what, what's, what they're thinking. And, and Jesus who knows Peter's thoughts. He, the Bible says that after breakfast, Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time, you see what he's doing here? Going back. He is reinstating Peter. He is restoring Peter. A third time, he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was actually hurt that Jesus asked him the question the third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you, Jesus said. Then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let 
let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him one more time the same thing that he had said to him three years prior. Who knows? Maybe they're on the same beach. Wouldn't that be crazy? They're on the same beach as three years before. But here they are, and Jesus says the same thing. Peter, follow me. Follow me. And, and just like that, Peter is given a brand new start. Just like that, the power of shame and condemnation is broken in Peter's life. This is the grace of God. We aren't treated in a way that we deserve, but instead we're, we're treated in a way that we don't deserve. You know, we deserve punishment. We deserve the, sh the, the condemnation and the shame. But instead, because of God's grace, we are lavished with his love. We are lavished with his kindness. We are recipients of, of just the extravagant goodness of, the God, of, of our God. And if that wasn't enough, he says, here's what else I'm going to do. I'm going to adopt you as my son and as my daughter. You're going to be a part of my family. You're going to be heirs of the kingdom of God in all the crazy goodness that goes with that. This is the grace of God. Scripture says he will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And you know the best way to overcome sin? The best way to overcome addiction, to overcome shame, to overcome condemnation, is to encounter the radical grace of Jesus. You encounter his grace. Despite your sin, it comes in like a wrecking ball destroying the, dark, the darkness in your life. But, it, but, but there's something that you must do in order to experience this transformation that comes as a result of His grace. You have to trust and believe. In other words, you have to receive this grace, this gift that comes as a result of grace. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You, you could be the best most well-behaved person that's ever existed, you, you can't earn this grace. It's, it's free, freely given. You cannot earn it. To attempt to work for it is actually to insult the one who's already paid the price by dying on the cross. Working for something that's free is actually the weight of religion. You want to know what religion is? It is working your butt off for something that's been given to you for free. God's grace is it's, it's this gift. It's a free gift. But the scripture says, for it is by grace you have been saved. How? Through works? Through showing up to church every weekend? Through going and reading your Bible every single morning? Through being a, a, a really good person? Through, through checking off all the boxes on your religious checklist? No, the Bible says it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one, no one can boast. Because of his grace, salvation and all the life that goes along with that are free. Because of that, because Christ is in you, you are free. Free to follow Jesus imperfectly. Did you catch that? You are free to follow Jesus imperfectly. Free to, free, free to fight the good fight and, 
and make mistakes along the way. You don't have a Father in heaven who's just up there waiting for you to screw up, who's just up there waiting to make your life miserable because you make some mistakes. No, this, if, if, you, if that's your picture of God, you do not understand His grace. You just don't. Because of His grace, because of this gift, because of the transformation, because you're His son, His daughter, you're free to stop feeling the pressure to perform. You're free. You don't, have, you don't have to, as a follower of Jesus, feel this weight to strive and just be the certain kind of person. No, you're free. If you have the pressure to perform on your shoulders today, just let it slip away. God's grace is pretty big. It's pretty big. You're free. You're free to follow Jesus imperfectly. You're free to fight the good fight and make mistakes. You're free to stop feeling the pressure to perform. And as author John Bloom says, you are free to focus on living out childlike, dependent faith through authentic acts of love. That's, that's it. You know, God, in light of what you've done for me, God, in light of your, your goodness, in light of how you just love me and because of your grace and the way you lavish your forgiveness and your goodness, God, thank you that I don't have to perform. God, I'm going to live my life loving you, serving you, following you. Where are you at today when it comes to the grace of God? Are you somebody who goes, okay, yeah, I've, I've messed up, and you're, you're just feeling the, the weight of shame and condemnation? Listen again, that is not the voice of Jesus. The voice of Jesus is that voice on the beach that says, hey, I'm going to just bless you. Despite what's happened I'm, Hey cast your nets on the other side Here comes a big blessing your way The voice of Jesus is That voice that says hey I've got breakfast ready for you He doesn't say hey You've all walked away from me You've all abandoned me failed, failed me. You've made me feel awful Whatever no he's like hey guys I've got breakfast Let me show you my kindness Let me show you my goodness Let me show you my love That's his voice to you today and get this, it does not matter what you've done. It's not like there's this thing where he goes, okay, yeah, this is too big. My grace cannot, it, 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 that's too big for my grace. That's not, that's not our God. Our, our God's love is, is, is endless as far as the east is from the west, the Bible says. There's nothing that you have ever done that can ever stop God from loving you, that can ever stop him from pouring out his grace on your life. Nothing. All he asks is that we have faith and trust and we just, we receive. Like, God, just, I'm sorry for what I've done. God, I receive your grace. I receive your grace. And then when you get to that place, he, he invites you to live that life of childlike, dependent faith. Just authentic acts of love. Where are you at today? God wants to lavish you with his grace. He wants to lavish you with his love, his kindness, his forgiveness. And all you need to do is receive. God, I receive your grace. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, God, I just am so thankful for your grace. So thankful for your grace. I'm so thankful for your grace. God, I thank you for the way that Jesus, God, you know everything about us everything. 
God, there's not a thought that crosses our mind that you're not aware of. There's not a single act done in darkness that you're not aware of. God, the most vile, evil moment thing, whatever that we've done, God, you know it all. You know it all. And still, you're like that, that dad in the story of the prodigal son. You're just waiting for us to come back to you. You're waiting. You're waiting. In fact, not just waiting, but you keep pursuing us. You keep pursuing us. Pursuing, pursuing, pursuing. Going after us. God, I, I, I thank you that today, Lord, you are speaking to hearts. God, I don't know what that thing is that, that is keeping someone from you. But God, they're today, as they're, they're listening to this, they're just feeling like a failure. They feel, they're feeling like they've screwed up, made a mistake. It's too big. But God, you are in this moment pursuing them. Pursuing them. And you're not pursuing them with shame. You're not pursuing them with condemnation. You are pursuing them with your grace. You're pursuing them with your love. You're pursuing them with your mercy, with your loving kindness that leads us to repentance. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Lord, I pray, Jesus, that, that Lord, today we would be people, Jesus, who, who come back to you. God, when we've walked the way that, God, we come back to you. God, that we, we don't wait. We come back to you. We come back to you. God, that we just have an understanding of how big your grace is, that we just, we know we can come back to you. And God, I just, today I come against that lie that lie of shame and condemnation that says, no, you can't. What you've done is too bad, it's too big. No, you can't come back. We come against that lie in the name of Jesus. And God, I pray that today the truth of your word would reign supreme. That you did not come to this world to condemn it, but to save it. To save it. God, thank you so much for your grace. God, it truly is amazing. It truly is amazing. It truly is amazing. And Father, today I, I pray, Jesus, that, Lord, because of your grace, because of your love, because of the cross, because of, because of the empty tomb, God, may, may we know the life and the joy and the purpose and the peace and the healing. God, everything that comes from, from, from being a part of your family, may we know that today. May we walk in that today. May we walk in that tomorrow. May we, not, may we not be people who forget about how big your grace is and we move into the striving of religion. God, may we be people, God, who, who walk in the fullness of your grace, knowing that we're going to slip up, knowing that we're going to be imperfect, knowing that we're going to fail. But God, we just keep coming back to you because of your grace, because we've encountered our loving Father who's just so, so good. Help us in this, I pray. In your name, Jesus.